Well, we are in a series of lessons called The Bible Doesn't Say That. And in this series, we're exploring some popular sayings and beliefs that so often are held up as Scripture, but really aren't Scripture. Things that, you know, may sound biblical or things that we may even want to, you know, be biblical, desperately want them to be biblical, things that may even have a little bit of biblical truth in them. And yet the reality is the Bible just doesn't say that. So let me start today with with kind of a question. Uh, How many of you know who Nicholas Sparks is? Just raise your hand at home. Uh, How many of you know who Nicholas Sparks is? For those of you who don't know who that is, some of you I'm sure know who that is, but for those of you who don't know who that is, Nicholas Sparks is a man who basically writes books that turn into movies that help sell Kleenex. I mean, if we're just summing it up, that's really what he he does. Now, I've never read one of his books. Um, I have I just haven't chosen to. Uh, I have seen a couple of his movies, uh, only because my wife made me. Uh, His most notable ones you probably would recognize, uh, A Walk to Remember, uh, The Notebook, uh, Message in a Bottle, I think is another one that he wrote. Uh, But before Nicholas Sparks and A Walk to Remember, uh, there was another writer and another book that turned into a movie that was of a similar um, line, plot line. Uh, But there was a guy by the name of Eric Siegel, who... Again, before Nicholas Sparks, there was Eric Siegel, and he wrote a book that became a movie that some of you a little bit older may remember. It was called Love Story. Uh, How many of you remember Love Story for some of you a little bit older generation? It came out in like 1970, I think is when the movie was. I think the book was written just a few years before that, but uh, it starred two young actors named Ali McGraw and uh, Ryan O'Neill. And it was your typical plot line. They're in college and they meet early in the movie. He's a young, brash jock from an upper-class family. She's a, um, you know, kind of a quick-witted, intellectual type. She's studying classical music. She comes from a, uh, as opposed to an upper-class family, she comes from more of a working-class family. And they instantly hate each other, which you know means that they're going to fall in love. And so the first part of the movie is just this romantic comedy of them falling in love and their growing and budding relationship. And uh, then there are like literally five minutes of shared happiness, it seems like. And then... The rest of the movie is like 40 minutes of tragedy as, unfortunately, she contracts uh, leukemia and eventually dies. Sorry if I gave away the plot of the movie. Again, it's like 50 years old, so you probably, uh, if you were going to see it, you probably would have seen it by now. But in one of the last scenes, as she lays dying in a hospital bed and he's with her expressing regret, the music cues up and she bats her eyes and she says a line that I'm sure we've all heard before. She says, love means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, and all the women sighed and then they cried and it became a poster and it became a hit song with the popular boy band of the day. Love means never having to say you're sorry. And I know that sounds good, you know, and I mean no offense by this, but that is one of the dumbest things anyone has ever said. Love doesn't mean never having to say you're sorry. Love means saying you're sorry all the time. I mean, let me just say to the husbands out there, you better say you're sorry for the things that you do that are wrong. You better say you're sorry for the things that you do that you didn't know were wrong. 
And, and you better say you're sorry even when you, you, know, you, you don't know if you should be sorry. And you better throw in a couple of random I'm sorry's every day just to cover over a multitude of sins, okay? <laughs> you see, we're, we're always dispensing this common wisdom that sounds so intelligent but really isn't often very helpful. I heard about a woman who uh, called into a talk show on a radio that was offering home advice, and she was frantic. She said, I've got a skunk, a skunk in my basement. I don't know what to do. And the talk show host tried to stay calm and kind of walk her through it. And he said, okay, here's, here's, what, here's the advice I would give you. Open up the back door and have a trail of breadcrumbs that leads from the basement to the back door and out into the backyard. So one hour later, the show's still going on. She calls back, and now she's not just frantic, but she is furious. And the talk show host says, well, didn't the advice work? And she said, yeah, now I've got two skunks in my basement. (laughs) And more than likely, you have either given or been on the receiving end of advice that was intended to be helpful, but wasn't very helpful at all. And we do that a lot, thinking we're using the Bible, but as we've seen, some of the stuff we say is just not in there. Like, follow your heart. That's, that's not in the Bible. Or as we looked at last week, this idea of, of God has a plan for your life, that he's got every detail mapped out and lined up to the very last iota. And that just isn't in the Bible. And as we're going to see next time, that phrase we hear just about every time there's a tragedy, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Is that in the Bible? We're going to look at that next week. And no doubt, when you or someone that you know has gone through a very trying season, somebody has probably said, and this is the phrase that we're going to look at today, God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle. Now, is that useful? Because honestly, isn't that more of a a taunt, in some measure more of a taunt than a word of comfort? I mean, because basically, aren't you implying, hey, toughen up, you wimp. I mean, it's not that bad. Power through this and get over it. So I'm not sure it's, it's very useful. But more than that, is it even truthful? Is God some cosmic cheerleader that just piles a whole bunch of junk and pain and burden on your life and then stands on the sidelines shouting, you can do it, you can do it, just try harder, try harder, push through, push through. Now you're probably thinking, but Josh, I know there's a verse somewhere in the Bible that says something about God will never give you more than you can handle, more than you can bear. Well, let's take a look Uh, for a moment at that verse. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Here's what it says. No temptation, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, what is that verse saying? And maybe just as importantly, what is that verse not Saying Well, for one, it's saying that not sinning is always an option. Not sinning is always an option. You see, here's the deal. When, if you are a Christian, when, when you got baptized, your sins are washed away and you've been forgiven. But it does not drown the devil. Just because your sins have been forgiven does not mean that it drowns 
the devil. In fact, in some ways, you've got a bigger target on your back. And so Paul doesn't say if, but he says when you are tempted, because you can't avoid temptation. But this verse says, though, that you can always escape it. You can't avoid being tempted, but you can always escape it. In other words, God is saying through the Apostle Paul there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what he's saying is that no Christian ever gets to say, yeah, I sinned, but I had no choice. I mean, I, I had to do it. I really had no choice. That is just not true because the Bible says that God will never put you in a situation where the only thing you can do is disobey God. God will never do that. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, beyond what you can say no to, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 10, which implies to me that if it wasn't up to God, it could happen. You could be under more temptation than you could bear because you've got an enemy. And Jesus says that he is a liar and a thief and a murderer. And he would come at you with everything if God would let him. Remember, God said to the devil about Job when Satan wanted to, you know, to, to tempt Job to, to, to abandon God. God told Satan, he said, you can go this far, but you can't go that far. I heard a story about a, a cat in New York City that had a kitten in her mouth and she was trying to cross a busy street and, and she just couldn't. There were too many cars coming and a kind police officer saw her dilemma, walked out in the middle of the street and held his hand up or his arm up and all the traffic stopped and this cat was able to walk across the street and down the alley completely unaware that was with a raised hand, the full authority of the New York City Police Department was working on her behalf. Let me tell you, you and I have no idea how many times God has held up his hand and protected us from attacks that we would have gone through except from his care. God will not let you take a temptation test that is impossible for you to pass. There is always a way out from sinning, but there is no way out from suffering apart from Jesus coming again and the ultimate resurrection. And so the same apostle who said, we never have to disobey, wrote to the same church in his next letter and said, but we might have to despair. He writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, and listen to this part, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we, so that we despaired of life itself. And so while not sinning is always an option, Paul says that not suffering is really never an option. Disobedience is not to be excused, but discouragement ought to be expected. That same verse from another translation, New Living Translation, says it this way. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. Now, does that sound like a man who might be going through more than he can handle? You see, at no time do we have to be overcome by sin. But there will be times when we are overwhelmed by life. And some of us, even right now, 
maybe feeling overwhelmed in our hearts by the things that we're going through. And listen, it's not that God orders it. I don't want you to think that God orders it. This is simply a consequence of living in a fallen and broken world in need of redemption. But what God does not order, he does allow. He did allow Satan to attack Job. He didn't let Job, or he did let Job go go through more than he could handle. And if you just read through the Psalms, you could basically subtitle half of what David writes in the Psalms says, I can't handle it anymore. I can't take it anymore. God will let you go through that season in the belly of the fish like Jonah, where you don't know what to do. You don't have any other choice, it seems like, but to cry out to God. I like how one author put it. He said, yes, sometimes God will allow us to go through whales. But a more-than-you-can-handle season is not an elective course that some of us, just, just some of us, have to take. It is a required course that every one of us will be enrolled in at some point or another. Suffering is a given. But here's what we don't often expect. Suffering can also be a gift, especially when it's too much. Look at the very next verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. In fact, Paul writes, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And I like how the message translation puts that same verse. As it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. Instead of trusting in our own strength or wits to get out of it, we were forced to trust God totally. So why does God give us or allow us the gift of too much? Why does God let us go through a season that is more than we can handle in our own strength? Well, let me just give you a couple of reasons. First, because he wants to teach us to rely on him. We go through too much so that we will learn to rely on God more. Now, you need to know something about me, and you need to know this about me because what's true of me is more than likely true of you. My sinful flesh values self-reliance. I want to fix it. I want to cowboy up. I want to believe that if I can just hunker down and power through, then I can deal with anything I have to deal with. But you need to know something else about me because it's true of you too. I desperately need God. I was created to need God. And I am never in more desperate shape than when I forget how desperate I should be for God. And that's why too much can sometimes be just right. Because we can't live on the mountaintops. Now, I'm thankful for the mountaintop experiences, but some of us make the mistake of thinking that that's the only place we can know God and experience his goodness. And, and so we rush from mountaintop to mountaintop looking for that next God high. But here's the reality. Life won't let you stay on the mountaintop. Now, Paul, he got to go to the mountaintop. And he says, I was caught up in the spirit of, 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 you know, to the third heaven. And I saw and I heard things that I can't even tell you about. You can't, words can't even describe what I saw. But Paul couldn't stay there. And so he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, to keep me from becoming proud, self-reliant, 
I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, and each time he said to me, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ can work through me. I mean, just think about this. How sovereign is God? God used an attack of Satan on his servant to protect his servant from succumbing to the very sin that destroyed Satan. Satan fell because of pride. And God used Satan to keep Paul from falling because of his pride. I mean, that that is sovereignty, right? And Paul experienced in the depth of the valley a depth of grace that he had never known. So let me ask you, do you mean what you sing? Do you mean what you sing? Because we sing songs all the time that talk about how much we want to know God and how close we want to be to God. God, let me be more aware of your presence. Let me experience the glory of your goodness. Do you mean that? Do you mean what you sing? Because you will never know how all-sufficient the grace of God is until every prop and crutch you lean on is taken away and God is all you've got left. You will never know how strong the grace of God is apart from going through a season of tremendous weakness. The Bible says God gives grace to the humble. And so anything that is humbling me is helping me. And when you pray, God, I can't handle this anymore, that's a sign of weakness. And that's a good thing. Because listen to me, God doesn't give grace instead of weakness. God gives grace in the midst of our weakness. And his grace to his people often comes through his people. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul talks about being crushed and overwhelmed beyond his ability to endure, but how as a result of that experience he learned to to stop relying on himself and start relying on God. Listen to what he says in the very next verse, starting in verse 10. And God did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And listen to this. And you are helping us by praying for us then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. So why does God give us the gift of too much? So that we will will rely on him and so that we will comfort each other. Now we've all heard the phrase that hurt people hurt people, and that's true. But you know what is also true? Hurt people can help heal people. Following Jesus is a team sport. You've heard me say that many times. It's a team sport. It's not a a solo endeavor. It is a team sport. That's why it's so important for us to cultivate community. That's why it's so important for us to gather together to worship and stay connected and study God's word together and get involved in in Bible studies and just small groups and, and, and cultivating those relationships with each other because if Satan cannot get you to be disobedient, He will settle for getting you to be disconnected because Satan knows that you cannot live, you cannot live the Jesus life 
by yourself. And so often, God gives grace in those more than I can handle seasons through other people who understand all too much. In that same chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 4, He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. And so maybe instead of simply simply asking God to remove your thorn, why don't you ask God to redeem it? Because maybe that thorn can be converted into someone else's blessing. I've told you before about the example of oysters and how pearls are made, that when the oyster gets a crack in its shell, some foreign substance like a parasite or a grain of sand will work its way inside and it'll irritate the soft flesh, soft tissue of that oyster. But God has so designed that creature to secrete a substance as a defense mechanism that begins to coat and cover that irritant. And soon it hardens. And eventually over time, it becomes a pearl. The pain becomes a treasure to give to someone else. Because a pearl is essentially a healed wound. Your scars become your story. Some of you may be familiar with the name Bethany Hamilton. She's a surfer who lost an arm and in a shark attack at the age of just 14. And she's a strong believer, and God has used her to her weakness to become her witness. And she says this. I, I love this, this, what she says and just the mentality that she says. She says, I've had the chance to embrace more people with one arm than I could have ever had with two. I've had the chance to embrace more people with one arm than I ever could have had with two. And so what if what you have come through has prepared you for what God might be calling you to? Nobody can take away the scars, but we can give away our stories. And one day, we know all suffering will be removed, but the question is, this day, can our suffering be redeemed? Because when life is more than we can handle, we learn that God's grace is so much more than we could ever imagine. That's what the Bible says.